You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I'm joined by Nicholas Chapados. Nicholas is actually the co-founder and CSO with Element AI. Uh, for those of you not too familiar with Element, it's actually one of the largest uh, artificial intelligence companies in the world. We're going to learn a little bit more about what they're doing and obviously what Nick's views are on AI. Uh, Nick actually has an engineering degree from McGill University and a PhD in computer science from the University of Montreal. And he also, uh, relevant to the investing world, also has a CFA designation. So, Nick, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Raj, uh, and thanks to you for, for having me. So let's start at the top. So how do you, in a, in a very succinct way, how do you define uh, artificial intelligence? And also maybe you can tie it into how uh, it's being incorporated into your overall business model uh, at Element. So, so we uh, at at Elements we we take voluntarily a, a very broad view of what artificial intelligence is. So, to a lot of people, it means the ability for machines to do things that were previously the purview of of human beings. So, things like uh, recognizing objects in images or understanding uh, language from uh, from speech. Uh, or understanding the meaning of words that, that you see on a page. So, so it is true that all those things have made a lot of progress, uh, in the past few years and they may make, make it sound like machines are more intelligent. But to us, the, what, when we ask ourselves the question, what sits at the root of intelligence? What, what is the defining characteristic of an intelligent being? Um, it really is about the ability to make good decisions. It really is about the ability to take actions that are appropriate to the context uh, in which an agent uh, finds itself. Uh, and uh, those actions will sort of improve the well-being, if you will, of, of the agent in, in some form. So to us, uh, this is a... At the same time, a, a general view of what AI is, uh, maybe a broader perspective than what most people are talking about, but it really goes at the core of, of what uh, intelligence uh, uh, really means. So Element uh, is, is still a young organization. We, uh, we launched the company uh, in the fall of 2016, so just over uh, two, two and a half years ago. Um, we were eight people when we launched the business. Today, we're over 500 people uh, with five offices across the world and, and, of course, a good representation in Canada, including Toronto and uh, the, the Montreal headquarters. Um, and at the core, we are uh, an AI software company. So our products are uh, software products that implement uh, AI pieces, AI modules, that incorporates this, this ability to help organizations, to help our clients uh, improve their decision-making processes uh, within their own organization. So this all sounds uh, a bit abstract, but, you know, in more concrete terms, uh, one of the things we're working on right now is the whole area of document processing uh, to automate 
back office tasks, for example, in, in, in the banking or the, the financial uh, or the insurance world. So there's a, still a lot of papers in, uh, in financial institutions. Uh, what you want to do is from a, a form that's been filled out, for example, uh, from the, the mortgage application of a customer, you want to automatically figure out what the content of the form, uh, turn it into some kind of machine-readable uh, database structure, and from the content itself, trigger various business actions that will uh, do credit adjudication for the client uh, and, and set up the rest of the chain and, and the rest of the processing that ultimately lets uh, the, the bank perform the business function associated with issuing uh, a, new, a new mortgage. So that's, that's one example of the, of the, the products we're building. Uh, another financial example is in the area of capital markets where uh, we are helping um, uh, large uh, pension funds um, execute uh, large portfolio uh, rebalancing a lot more effectively. So this uh, involves sensing what's going on in the market, assessing, for example, things like liquidity conditions, and then um, suggesting the sequence of actions that uh, the trader uh, should should take or should agree to, and, and the machine can execute automatically, but the sequence of, of uh, rebalancing actions that will bring the portfolio to a target state while minimizing uh, the impact on the market, the information leakage, and, and all the things that happen when you're a large uh, institutional investor uh, that's, uh, that's uh, trying to move a large equity portfolio. So some, those are some of the of the examples of the software that, that we are building at, uh, at Element. So let's stay on the topic of uh, investing, uh, because I know obviously you have a CFA uh, and you're obviously very involved in AI. You know, I often, uh, when I'm out there talking to investment advisors and fund companies, uh, we often get into a bit of a debate as to what the role of AI should be as it relates to portfolio management. And there's some school of thought that, you know, the view is that AI can effectively replace the human portfolio management capabilities, especially with its ability uh, to mine data and, and look at things from a quantitative perspective. And then there's another school that says that, but you can never replace the ability to sit across the table from an individual read their body language, uh, and ask them the right questions before determining whether it's a stock or security that you want to own in the fund. I come from the school of thought that you can do, you can use both. You could use an element of artificial intelligence to help you with a, with a lot of the look back data from a quant perspective, but you still need to have somebody sitting across the table from individuals, um, to determine whether that's a company that you should be invested in. What's, what's your view? Yeah, so that's such a great question, and, and it really goes to the core of um, our role as, as human beings in, uh, in, in society. Um, and to us, the, the view uh, about the best role for AI in the future is that it, it should not be a fight between the artificial intelligence and the natural intelligence. It should not be about... Uh, replacing humans with machines, uh, but it, it should really be more about how can we use the machine to augment uh, the, the abilities, the 
knowledge and the wisdom that uh, we humans have. Uh, and and as much as it applies to all the areas that we're uh, working towards at, at Element, um, I think it, it especially applies in the area of, of portfolio management. So, of course, we have had quantitative methods of investment for, for a very long time. There are some very, very successful uh, firms that are fully automated in terms of their their investment decision and then how those translate into, into trading actions. Um, uh, yet at the same time, there, there is a place uh, for the, the, the unique insights into the evolution of the market that somebody with a broad view, a broad perspective, and not just the, the, the narrow set of signals on which it has been trained can, can provide. And, and this is where humans really shine. It is in this ability to be very, very fluid about the sources of information that they have access to and how they integrate new, uh, new signals and new information uh, into the decision-making process. Um, the thing is, is that uh, unless you have a lot of experience, it's, it's also easy as a human being to fool yourself into thinking that you're making much, much better decisions than, than you are. And this is especially prevalent in the investment world where uh, a lot of, of psychological biases have been documented for uh, decades now about how humans constantly misjudge uh, opportunities and are quite miscalibrated into their their assessments of, of probability. And this is really where machines can help. When we when we say that we want AI to elevate humans, it is really to take humans and uh, make the combination of human plus machine together be able to produce better decisions. Uh, and this, just as this is true in uh, credit adjudication decision for a bank, for example, it is also true in portfolio and capital allocation decision uh, in, an, in an investment context. One, uh, perhaps on a, on, a, on a related track, one of the areas where I think we're going to see a lot of new developments in the future is uh, the combination of natural language processing combined with uh, news flow analysis on uh, an almost real-time basis. Uh, and beyond uh, the, the very simple sentiment analysis technique that uh, have been used uh, so far in, in the market, we now have AI models that let us understand much more deeply the relationships between different pieces of text um, within a single news release, for example, as well as relationships that, that build up from the sequence of news pieces that you see um, throughout the day or throughout the week. And this offers the opportunity to give us new signals and, and new elements on which to make a better allocation decision. But to us, really, the, the game is about how can we, how can we make the machine um, complement and augment and elevate the human intelligence so that uh, the combination of, of human and machine uh, produces better outcomes. Your view on specific areas of the market, like, for example, what is your view of the role of artificial intelligence as it relates to cybersecurity 
How important is it? Um, are you guys involved in working with any cybersecurity companies? Obviously, you may not be able to name names, but are you guys involved in working with cybersecurity companies to augment their artificial intelligence usage? So, yeah, there there is um, um, cyber is an is an important part of of what we do. And uh, a few a few months ago, we we in fact announced a, a partnership with uh, the National Bank of Canada to uh, um, develop AI tools for cybersecurity in in a financial context. So obviously, there are lots of ways in which cyber and AI are interrelated. We, we just on the pure cyber front, of course, we can use AI to make um, cybersecurity tools more effective. If we look at the way traditionally cybersecurity uh, defenses and protection uh, are, are built, you need a lot of human expertise to understand what are the attack patterns and what are the, the threat vectors that you want to defend against. Um, and then you would build those uh, detection rules by hand into the software that would be deployed across the network to, to detect, uh, detect attack. But all of that is very labor intensive. It does not react very quickly when new uh, threat vectors are, are detected and, um, and, and discovered. Um, and, um, and also it requires a lot of expertise that um, might not be necessarily widely available. So, so AI promises to be a lot more data-driven. If you, if you have enough data, uh, we can show to the network uh, reams of uh, network traffic, for example, to teach the network, well, what does normal network traffic look like? And then um, the, the model can then act as some kind of, of anomaly detector. And when there are patterns that are a little out of the ordinary, those can be flagged uh, to be reviewed by, by analysts. So that's one area in which AI can help. Now, as we, the, the converse to that, if you will, is that as we deploy AI more broadly in organizations, um, there, there are new um, uh, attack surfaces and, and threat vectors that uh, become open just by the way of AI itself. So to take to take one example, one of the areas that AI has seen uh, tremendous progress over the past two or three years is in the area of generative models. We now have models that are technically random number generators that will generate uh, pictures of human faces that are so realistic that you cannot tell that uh, it, it is a, a picture of a fake person. Uh, by, the same, uh, by the same token, we, um, uh, we, we have seen results earlier this year by OpenAI about uh, generating uh, language, generating fake news, if you will, uh, purely from a random number generator in, in the same way with a very, very clever language model. Um, so you can combine uh, these ideas into creating, for example, the next generation phishing attack or the next generation of social engineering attack where you will have uh, a completely automated way of having a conversation, a realistic conversation with 
target in a big company uh, and convince them that, oh, you're from their IT department and they should give you their password, for example. We, we might see more of that happening just because um, AI has made a lot of progress in understanding how the world works, understanding how language works, and those things, as much as they are useful, can also be used uh, for nefarious purposes uh, in, in the wrong hands. It really goes both ways. Uh, AI can help cyber, but at the same time, it, it opens it opens new uh, new threat vectors. Yeah, you know, we have a uh, cybersecurity ETF, and one of the things that we often see when we look at the the data around the space is how big the shortage of human capital is uh, in that sector. Like right now, I think there's about uh, three, almost three million job vacancies in the cybersecurity world. So. When you look at artificial intelligence, oftentimes we keep hearing about how it's going to replace jobs uh, that are out there, uh, whereas uh, I think in the cybersecurity world, it, it can actually help fulfill that, that shortage uh, of, uh, of human capital that exists in the space. Um, let's talk about uh, self-driving or autonomous cars. Um, first of all, prediction. When will we have self-driving cars on the roads here in Canada? Um, I would say not before 10 years. Really? As, as a prediction. Because Canada is kind of hard. You need to deal with winter. And uh, all the self-driving car companies that are building things in California and Arizona uh, are not quite thinking about the, the harshness of the, the, our conditions here. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think it's probably fine. I know that they've got a long way to go to deal with, with weather conditions, but I felt, I felt like it was we were closer. I felt like the bigger issue was legislation uh, that, that could take a little bit longer to, to enable, but I'm actually surprised that you think it's going to be 10 years out. Um, obviously, when we have self – well, give me your, your view on this, but when we eventually have self-driving cars, will that be the single – piece of equipment that we own that is utilizing the most uh, AI? Um, it will be one one more piece, but I, I think the whole, uh, our whole world will become more enabled and, and uh, better, uh, better automated through AI um, in, in all aspects of daily life. If you think about it, AI is already very, very much used uh, by our phones, by our computers, uh, by the, the cloud services that we use every day. So, so as consumers, we already have benefited a lot from um, many of the advances in AI over the past uh, the past few years. Uh, to me, self-driving cars, whether we own them or we rent them for for short periods of time, uh, but that core technology will just uh, place itself in uh, a mosaic of a much, much broader technological change that uh, is going to happen across all of society and across all of the economy over the next uh, 10 to 15 years or so. But we, we, we absolutely will see uh, broad changes and, and self-driving cars and, and autonomous vehicles will be uh, a, small, a small fraction. Uh, of those. So let's talk about privacy. Um, 
obviously for many of us, you know, the most common examples of AI that we utilize are things like our Google Home or Alexa. And uh, I, I know I, I've watched that demo for Google Duplex on, on YouTube and I was blown away by the capability and most likely the usage of AI uh, with, uh, within it. But um, how is the data being consumed and how is it being stored and utilized? And I guess most importantly, what are your views or thoughts around privacy um, and and really, you know, are are you are we going to see more rules and regulations uh, around uh, privacy as it relates to data in Canada? So, so it, it makes no doubt that we will see uh, more rules and um, regulation around privacy. But it's it's very helpful to to take a few steps back and try to think about uh, the role of data in in AI. Um, the, the current generation of AI systems use data as one of their main inputs. So uh, most of AI today relies on a technology that we call machine learning. And by its name, it means that machines are learning from, uh, from data that, that we give them. So the, the amount of data and the quality of that data are absolutely key and of fundamental importance to the performance of those machine learning models. Um, we, we often hear the, the motto that no data, no AI, and to, to a large extent, if you want to do image classification or natural uh, language processing, you absolutely need tremendous amounts of data for that. So the, the, the question of privacy really uh, is um, about a fundamental conflict between the, the generators of data and the, the consumers um, and the aggregators of, um, of, of those data. And so far, we have taken a relatively lax view about, you know, the value of uh, the, the individual value of the, the, the Google searches that you make, uh, the likes that you put on a, on a Facebook post and uh, things, of, things of that sort. But in, in aggregate, what we're realizing is that even though your own personal searches rash on Google might not mean a lot, if we aggregate the searches from uh, billions of people on this planet, Google is able to extract uh, very, very broad patterns um, and then sell ads against those and make a lot of money in, in, in the process. So we, the past 10 years have been quite eye-opening into the value of data at scale and, and how we, uh, the value of data at scale and um, uh, how it's, uh, it can produce uh, enormous value for some of the companies that aggregate this, uh, this data. The, the question then becomes, what is the right model for um, aggregating data, and should we as consumers have more rights into the, the data that we give those big corporations? And there, there have been quite a lot of thinking in academic circles over the past uh, year or two around new models for data ownership. The model of today is that uh, essentially when you use Facebook or, or when you use Google, those entities become the legal owner of the, the data 
traces that or the data imprint that that you leave behind when you use the the services um and in legal circles for example uh, there has been uh, a notion emerging that uh, is known as data trust that represents a new form, a new legal structure that would own data that is created by individuals and better apportion the, eco the uh, economic benefit that results from the use of that data. So you, Raj, for example, might select at one point to put all your personal data into a trust that is dedicated to helping um, improve the environment, for example, or that is dedicated to some cause. It might give you back some of the economic benefits, but it might uh, just donate some of the uh, proceeds to good causes that, that you would agree to. Um, and in the... Um, uh, uh, just uh, just in early December, um, coincident with the, the NERIT uh, meeting that was happening last year in, in um, Montreal, um, we at uh, Element AI sponsored a workshop with some uh, 30 of the best uh, legal and uh, ethical minds in the world on the topic of data trust to really think about what are some of the implications of those new legal structures um, can we uh, help gain back some data sovereignty for the individuals uh, from the hands of uh, big corporations that have been uh, owning all the uh, all the the benefits from using huge amounts of data so far? So there is a lot of thinking uh, right now going on. Uh, I I would not claim that. Um, the best solution has been found for, for this problem, but there certainly has been a lot of progress uh, being made in the, in the past few months. Mm. Interesting. Um, I want to ask you uh, one last question about your predictions for AI, but before I do, uh, one of the things, and I think you and I spoke about this at breakfast a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things that I found most interesting is is how Montreal specifically has become a hotbed of talent uh, within the artificial uh, intelligence industry. And in fact, there are some people out there that actually say that AI originated uh, uh, in Montreal. Can you provide some, some of your thoughts uh, on, that, on that side? So um, you, you will always find, you know, the curious character that is willing to uh, overly exaggerate claims in order to uh, to uh, make a statement. So AI has been around for a long time. I'm happy to say that, yes, the Montreal ecosystem has played uh, a role in its development, uh, but to say that AI originated in Montreal is, 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 uh, extremely, uh, is extremely ambitious. Uh, one thing that is true, however, is that um, a specific brand of AI known as deep learning uh, was very, very much developed uh, in Montreal and in Toronto uh, as well, uh, really resulting from the work that was recognized uh, by the, the highest distinction in computer science, um, uh, an award known as the Turing Award, just uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, for for this year, the Turing Award was was given to uh, Yoshua Bengio from the University of Montreal, Jeff Hinton from the University of Toronto, uh, who also spends a lot of time at uh, Google these days, as well as Yann Lequin, uh, who's faculty at NYU and also head of uh, AI research at uh, Facebook. And um, these three gentlemen have uh, worked um, largely together on uh, building the fundamental principles and the fundamental understanding to make deep learning ready for prime time. So to take uh, these things uh, that were uh, half working, so specific architectures of um, neural networks, for example, that uh, were very much um, curiosity uh, in the in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. Um, and really have shown the world how to uh, make them work uh, at much, much bigger scale, um, ingesting uh, far, far bigger amounts of data than uh, was possible before, and ultimately um, just completely um, establishing themselves as the de facto method by which uh, we should do computer vision, natural language processing, robotics, uh, and and other uh, areas of application. So those that trio really uh, is at the, the the root of the deep learning revolution in Montreal specifically. Since your, your question was about Montreal, um, it has been the work of uh, Joshua that uh, created almost from nothing this uh, this very thriving ecosystem that, that we now have. I was myself very fortunate to do my master's and my PhD with, uh, with Yoshua, uh, but in the past, uh, in the past few years, the environment in Montreal has really blossomed into a, uh, um, uh, into, uh, uh, and, and taken on a life, a life of its own. Recently, the, the, the Mila Labs, um, has, uh, has been established as an independent entity from uh, any university, so it's now its own not-for-profit organization housing uh, several hundred researchers, PhD students, and postdocs and faculty uh, to push forward AI research. And the MILA sits really in uh, at the center of um, a new neighborhood in Montreal that uh, we we call uh, the, the the AI neighborhood, and companies like Element AI uh, and and uh, Imagia, and also the local labs of uh, Facebook and Microsoft Research are getting established around this uh, a couple of blocks uh, in the city, and this really makes for beautiful interactions uh, between all the researchers, regardless of where they sit physically, whether they are in an academic environment or they are in a, uh, in, in a more industrial environment. That's great. Well, congratulations on all your success uh, with, with Element and obviously your personal success as well. Before we close off, maybe you can give us a few of your, the most exciting things that you see in AI over the next uh, few years, maybe three to five years, and how it's actually going to impact uh, our lives and our world right now. 
Yeah, so so it's it's a it's a great last question because I was at uh, the the IT conference last week, and uh, of course I got uh, a full buffet of things to be excited about. Uh, I guess the, the the two things that are most on my radar right now is uh, first the the study of what we call causality. So. Until now, machine learning uh, algorithms have been, uh, you can think of them as, as being huge correlation machines. So they are very, very good at extracting associations in the data, relationships, predictive patterns, and things like that, but without really understanding um, what is driving uh, the specific observations that uh, you see um, uh, being measured in the world. So this, this understanding of the, the causal determinants of the data that you see um, has not uh, made as much progress as, as other areas of machine learning in the past few years. Now we are seeing that change a lot. So we have a lot of research effort and, and a lot of people that are now focusing their energy on trying to tease out um, from data, but also from surrounding uh, knowledge about the world, um, what can these data tell us about the true causal determinants of, of observed phenomena? And, and we are going to see a lot of that in uh, the next few years. This will make machines uh, smarter because we'll get a much better ability to generalize to new situations that the machine has never seen before because it's got a better understanding of what are the, the driving forces in the world. Um, and second, we'll get machines that are more explainable as well. So they will be able to, to give us explanations for what's going on um, in, 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 a, in a better way. Um, the second aspect that to me is very, very meaningful is the, the fusion between knowledge graphs and um, neural networks. So something that is known as, as uh, uh, neural knowledge representations, for example, where we get the ability to uh, teach a neural network from examples that are sampled from, from uh, a data set and um, at the same time from background knowledge that is specified in a, in a more crisp form, um, a more traditional form of knowledge that can be encoded in things like uh, a knowledge graph. So you could have, for example, a conversational model that is that can be taught from examples uh, that uh, you can you can tell it, yeah, this was a good reply, this was not a good reply, and it can also at the same time draw upon the whole knowledge of Wikipedia in order to give you answers that uh, incorporate a lot of, of prior knowledge about the world. So we're going to see those worlds uh, become. Um, a lot closer in the next few years. This will give us smarter, um, smarter machines, again, better explainability, uh, better conversational agents, uh, and, and so forth. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Nick. That was uh, very insightful. The, the, pleasure, the pleasure was all mine. Uh, Raj, uh, wish you a great day as well. Thank you. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com. <laughs>